dark, clammy place. It's hard to pick out what it is, but it's, it's dark, it's cold, it's clammy. And as we come into this place, um, it's hard to adjust our vision. It's dark. And then all of a sudden, we kind of see a light out in the, in the distance a little bit. And, and, and there, there seems to be a conversation going on out, out, out past. And as we get closer and as the camera kind of takes us more into this, this room, um, I don't know if it's a cave. I don't know if it's a room. I don't know what it is. But we see now some images. We see some people sitting. And they seem to be having a conversation. And, and, and it's dark. It's dreary. But, but they seem to be talking by this candle. And as we get closer, we see, yeah, there, there's, there seems to be somebody there. No, I think there's two. No, no, I think there's, there's like four men sitting. And they seem to be having a conversation. But as we get closer and we're able to see more clearly, we see that really it's only two people that are engaged and two people that are completely disengaged. And it's just interesting. And then as it gets, comes clearer and we really are able to, to focus on these four men that are sitting in here, we realize that the two men, one on the right, one on the left of the person in the middle that seems to be doing most of the talking, are, are chained to this man. And we realize we're not in a cave, we're not in a room, we're in a prison. And we're looking at four innocent men that are sitting in this prison, and there seems to be a conversation going on. Two of the men seems to, two of the men are, are prison guards. One of the men is a visitor, and one of the men is, is a prisoner. And this pastor is sitting in this prison, chained to two men, having a conversation with his friend. And when you look at it, you think, how could this be? This was a prominent pastor. This was an, a, a pastor who had a great ministry. Thousands of people were coming to the Lord through his ministry. It was really pretty unbelievable. Miracles were happening. People were being healed. Demons were being cast out. People were coming to the Lord. Churches were being planted all over the place. This guy was having an impact for God that had never been seen before. He was raising up pastors to grow churches. He was well known among all the religious circles. In fact, he was well known among the prominent political leaders. They either knew him personally or knew of him. And here's this man of God who had done so much to serve the Lord sitting in prison. Chained. And I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, man, there's just too much to do for me to be here, God. I don't get this. I mean, I have churches that need to grow and that need to mature. I have pastors that are new and inexperienced. They don't understand theology. They don't understand what they need to know to lead these churches. They don't understand what it, what it takes to pastor these churches. Lord, what am I doing here? There's so much for me to do. There's so much that needs to happen. This isn't the way I, I planned it. This, this, how can this happen? How, how can your work be carried out when I'm in here? And there's so much to do. <clears throat> and yet as he sits there with his friend, he does all that he can do. He says, I have this church that I love, that I cared for, that I built, and, and I'm going to write a letter to them. 
I'm going to get out the word to them. I'm going to do, do whatever I can, however I can, to help them understand what they need to know in order for them to minister in this church, in order for them to be able to be strengthened in the Lord. And he writes this letter. And it's a challenge because for the first time, some of the church people in that church realize that, that the God is not some angry God that's sitting up there who has laid out some laws and is just waiting for them to make a mistake so he can punish them. They, they see for the first time that this is a God that loves them and cares for them. And there's other people who have come into this church who, who grew up believing that there was a whole bunch of different gods. And this was just another one of those gods. No, this was Almighty God, the creator of the universe, who has a personal relationship with them. He's got people in this church that, he, that just need to know the truth. They need to grow in maturity and understanding. And, and they've lived so long with a different concept of who God is that they just need to grow in that. And how does he help that happen when he's sitting where he's sitting? It doesn't make sense, God. This does not make sense at all. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm going to try to care for these people the best I can. So he writes letter. And in the letter, he wants them to know that they're holy and blameless, that they've been adopted into God's family, that they've been redeemed in forgiveness. He wants them to know that God in all his wisdom and insight made known to them the mystery of his will, that the Gentiles and the Jews could come together and be one. He wanted them to know that they've received an inheritance. That's unbelievable for the Gentiles. How could they have an inheritance in God's kingdom? He wants them to know that not only has that happened, but they've been sealed. And the promise of the Holy Spirit, nothing will ever separate them from that love that God has for them. He wants them to know that. He's sitting in prison, wanting these people to know this so desperately, so he writes this letter. And he, and he encourages them that even though they were dead in their trespasses and sin, God, who was so rich in mercy, made them alive together with Christ. He wants them to know that they've been saved by grace, not by works, that they can't boast that they've been saved. He wanted them to know that they're his workmanship that had been created for good works. Oh man, he had so much that he wanted them to know and so all he can do is write this letter. He wanted them to know that they're fellow heirs and they're fellow members of the body that these Jews and Gentiles are coming together and they can become one. That is totally foreign to them. And they got to learn this somehow. that they're fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's sending this to them, and he's writing this letter. And, and in, the, in the midst of talking to his friend and, and penning this letter, he stops. And he just takes some time to think of this, this body of believers and how much he loves them and how rich it, had, it was as he spent three years with them, discipling them and caring for them and being with them. And, and he breaks out in this prayer. And, and it is such an amazing prayer that I think it, it would warrant a couple of weeks for us to go through it together. And to really unpack this. Because I think this prayer, as we internalize it and understand it, could really allow us to be a body of believers that understand that we really truly are better together. And as we pray for each other in, in, in a way that, that, that is transforming, that could be so powerful. 
And as we get into this, I want to make sure we understand that, that, that every week, you know, we talk about these connect cards and, and, and they're such a, a, an important instrument for our body, for us to be in touch with each other, for us to know how to pray for each other. And we need to be praying for each other. We need to lift up each other who are in pain and who need healing. We need to lift up people who are looking for work. We need to lift up for people who are having relational issues or, or having addiction issues or having some of those things that, that, that were being asked to pray for. We need to rejoice when people are sending the rejoices. We need to rejoice with them. We need to do those things. Because I, I, I want you to know, you need to keep praying for Marge. Don't stop. Because we need prayer. But I also want us to understand that there is a, a, a principle that Paul is going to show us of how to pray for each other that is so powerful that it, it will be transforming. So we're going to be in Ephesians 3. So let's turn together to Ephesians 3. We're going to spend some time looking at this. Starting at verse 14. So you have to go through Corinthians, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. If you get to Philippians, you went too far, go back. If you get to like Colossians or Timothy, you really went too far. <laughs> if you have your phone, just type in Ephesians. You'll get there really fast. Ephesians 3, picking it up on verse 14. Here we go. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Now think about this. He's writing this letter. He's writing about all these things that I kind of outlined. He goes, man, for this reason, as I think about all of the things that I've been trying to tell you, all of the things I've been trying to teach you, that you would understand that you as Jews and you as Gentiles are coming together as one body, as one family. You guys aren't going to hate each other anymore. You're going to love each other. So he goes, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth um, derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Man, is that good or is that good? Paul, as he stops, wants his church to understand this important principle. And I want to take this and I really want to start to unpack it because there's so much in here that we'll miss if we don't take time to look at it. And the first thing I want us to recognize is when, when Paul says that um, he bows his knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that is an important thing for us to understand. That God is our Father. He wanted, the, he wanted this church to understand that, that, that this God that they had was a Father who loved them. And the whole rest of this prayer is a prayer that he's praying that that love that God has for them would be something that they would internalize and that they would grab a hold of and that they would recognize and it would be all-encompassing. 
Because they need to know that, that, that this, this God that's up there is their heavenly father. It's their daddy who loves them. And this is important because in the mind of the Jews, handed down from generation to generation to generation, this was not the God that was handed down from generation to generation to generation. Let's look at the God that the Jews understood. This is a powerful thing to understand. And I don't know who your God is. Because we have a tendency to paint God in our image. We have a tendency to create God the way we want God to be. And God wants us to know who he is. And and he does that so that he can allow us to walk with him and be his child and have him take care of us and give us peace and joy and hope. So so let's turn to Exodus 19. I promise it's easier to find than, than Ephesians. Just go to the beginning and start working your way to the right and you'll get to it. Exodus 19. So before we get into this, let me give you, while you guys are turning and while you're finding it, let me give you a little bit of background, okay? Those of you that were here a year ago, it's been a year, huh? And we walked through Exodus for, I don't know how long it was, eight, 10 weeks or something like that. And we looked at, at, at this, this, this purpose of what God was carrying out through this whole pilgrimage that he took his people through in Exodus. And just to give you a little bit of review, those of you that weren't here who forgot what we talked about, you know, the, the, the chosen people, God told, told Abraham, go, and I'm going to lead you someplace where you don't know where to go. And he goes, okay, let's go. And so they go, and Abraham ends up camping out. And what happens is his sons end up taking over, and then there's a famine in the land. And because they needed food, they went to Egypt to get food. It just so happened that God somehow planted one of the sons in Egypt, and that son became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Are you tracking with me? And so the sons come, and this, this, this Joseph says, oh, yes. I can give you food. And so he gives them food. And not only does he give them food, but he takes the whole family and he moves them into Egypt and he gives them a choice land right by the Nile. And so they camp out there. And they're living and they're prospering and they're going, we like this. This is comfortable. This is peaceful. There's a lot of good stuff here. And God says, well, that's really good, but that's not where I want you. Remember? We talked about this last year. That's not the promised land. That's Egypt. So often, don't we camp out in Egypt and go, I like it. This is comfortable. And God goes, that's not where I want you. And so we go, that's too bad because I like it here. And so the Israelites are there, right? And God says, well, you know what? I'm going to make it a little less comfortable for you. And so what did he do? He raised up this Pharaoh who says, you know what? I really don't know this Joseph guy, and I really don't care about this Joseph guy, but I look out here, and I see all these people, and I know that if we ever get attacked and they make allies with these people, we are toast. Even though we're the most powerful empire in the known world, we could be overthrown if that mass of people began to become allies with our enemies. And so he says, we have to fix that. So he made them slaves, right? And so for 400 years, the Israelites were slaves to the most powerful entity in the known world. And so for 400 years, their knowledge of who God was, their customs, their beliefs... What Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had began to pour into them, they, they, they lost all that and they began to adopt a lot of the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian ways. And, and God needed to get them out of that into where he wanted them again to be as chosen people. So he made it uncomfortable for them. And finally, after a while, they, they said, this is too uncomfortable. God, get us out of here. And God says, oh, good, I'm glad you asked. And he says, he grabbed some guy named Moses, and we talked about this last year, through a whole bunch of, re- he ended up over here, God finally got him ready to be the guy who was going to lead him out of, out of Egypt, and he comes and tells Pharaoh, set my people free, and Pharaoh says, well, let me think about it. No. <laughs> I need these people. 
So God sent 10 plagues, right? And finally he says, get out, done, out, go. So the Israelites leave, right? They get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea blocks them. All of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind for the umpteenth time, comes to get them. They look back and go, oh my God, what's going on, God? We're going to die. And God says, just don't stress out. Opens the Red Sea, right? They go through the Red Sea. Egyptians follow them in. The Red Sea closes. Israel is on one side. Egyptians are swimming on the other side. And now they're in the desert. And God says, I want you to know the God that you're following. I want to give you a glimpse of the God that you've lost over those 400 years that you've been in Egypt. I want you to understand the God that you're going to make a contract with. See, in Exodus 19, God says, if you obey me fully, then out of the entire world, you're going to be my treasured people. You're going to be my treasure and even though the whole world is mine, you're going to be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession. I'm going to have a relationship with you. And I'll have a relationship with you so that the world may know that I am God, that I am the Lord Almighty. And he says, let me give you a glimpse of the type of God that's leading you. And so now we have, after 400 years, God coming to the people and, and helping them understand what kind of God he is. Man, this is so good. We could spend another 10 weeks through this. <clears throat> Probably not. So let's go to verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and you may also believe in, and they, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today. Let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the, the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Don't go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Wow, does that sound like a God you want to hang out with? That was the God that was handed down to the, to the Jews from generation to generation to generation. Thunder and lightning and smoke and a border around the mountain. And don't touch that mountain because if you touch it, you will die. And by the way, don't let your pets run free either because if they touch it, they're going to be stoned too. Don't cross this line. That was the God that the Jews were handing down 
generation after generation after generation. And Paul, as he sits in prison, goes, uh, that is so deeply indoctrinated in them. How do I help them understand that that is not the same God that we know? Now, that is the same God, right? God is still a God of judgment. God is still a God of power. God is still a righteous judge, right? But Jesus came, and what did Jesus do? Jesus goes, hey, there is a new contract. I am touchable. 18 times in Mark, Luke, John, and Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 18 times he allowed people to come and to touch him over and over and over again. People were able to cross that barrier and touch him. He came to show people that God was not only a powerful, mighty God, but he was a touchable God. See, God of Exodus wanted them to know what? He wanted them to know, hey, you need to know whose corner you're in because you're going into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there's all kinds of problems. There's enemies. By the way, there are giants. If you don't know that I'm a powerful, mighty God, you are not going to make it through. I mean, he could have come with a bunch of pinky little you know, balloons and dropped them all over the place, and they could have all grabbed their pink balloons and taken them to their tent, and they would have known that he was some pink, lovey, cuddly God, and everybody would have been happy, and God says, that's not what you need. You need to know that I'm a powerful God. And you need to know whose corner you're in because as you walk with me and as you obey me and as you face challenges, that is the God that is going to carry you through. Now Paul is saying, yeah, that is still God, but I want you to know all of who God is, not just this part of God. And see, I think for a lot of us, we need our our understanding of God broadened because we have a tendency to narrow God down to our experience. And we like to create God in our experience and our image and have him be who we think he should be. And Paul wants us to understand, and he's writing to this church of Ephesians, to understand who God really is. That he's a God who's touchable, that he's a God who loves them, that he's a God who's their father. See, this was important for me because I grew up going to church. I went to church my whole life. As long as I can remember, my mom would take us to church. And so every Sunday morning, we'd get up, we would go to church. And it wasn't so bad when there was just like two or three of us. But man, as our family grew, it became a little more of a challenge. I don't know how she pulled it off. I mean, I had eight brothers and sisters. So if you can imagine trying to get eight people to go someplace they really didn't want to go anyway, and then trying to behave while they're there, um, we didn't have children's church. I mean, we had us... I just I could crawl back and forth across the pews and get in all kinds of trouble. But my view was that, that you know, there was um, a God for sure. I had no doubt about that. But, 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 but my God was somebody up there somewhere, and I was down here. And he did what he did, and I did what I did. And I figured at some point we'd meet, so I would you know, get drunk and crazy on Friday night and Saturday night, and I'd go to church on Sunday. And every once in a while, I'd go to communion or go to a confession, a communion tube, a confession, and make sure that I'd get things as right as possible, because I knew when we got together, um, there were probably going to be some problems. And when I was in college, I played basketball in college, and at my sophomore year, this guy invited me to go to um, a retreat. Now, where I was raised in church, we didn't do those things. So I had no idea what he's talking about, and it didn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me. 
So I just kept putting him off, putting him off, putting him off. And he's a fun guy. We used to hang around together and, you know, and stuff. And he, he says, well, you know, there's going to be girls. There's going to be basketball. There's going to be volleyball. It's going to be up in the mountains. It's going to be clear air. I mean, you're really going to like it. And I go, Father, it was Friday. We were, leave, they were supposed to leave Friday afternoon. And again, I'm ignorant. He goes, you just got to come. I don't even register. Who cares? I'm not going to pay. Who cares? So he drags me off to his church in Pasadena. And, and I can remember, because I, I get out of the car, and, and, and the first thing he told me was really true, there were girls. And we walk across the parking lot, and this was like 40-some years ago, and I can still remember, there was a girl named Lynn Schwalbach. I saw her, and I go, oh my gosh. I've never seen anybody that pretty in my life. I go, Ray, who is that? He goes, you don't want to know. She has a boyfriend. I, I don't care. I, Ray, I'm meeting that girl this weekend. I can guarantee you that. And I did. And I met her boyfriend. Like 6'5", 280. Really nice guy. Really, really nice guy. But what I didn't know, because there was some volleyball and basketball, but it wasn't the, th the stuff I was planning on. It was church stuff. It's church volleyball. Come on. But there was a guy teaching, and I can remember this as clearly as I was there. He came, his name was Chuck Miller. He was a youth minister at Lake Avenue Church. And he said, you know what? God is the creator, the designer, and the director of the universe. And he talked about God in a way I never understood before. And, and we, we read the Bible. And I'd never read the Bible before. In fact, I went to church my whole life. And when they would get up and say, there is a reading from the epistle of St. John, there's a reading from the Gospel of John. I didn't know that was in the Bible. I had no idea what they're reading from. I just knew they were reading something, and I didn't care. But boy, when this guy started talking about God being the creator and how he created us and how he designed us exactly the way he wanted us and how he directs us and he has a personal relationship and he wants to direct us exactly where he wants us to go, how he wants us to get there, that was life-changing. Because I didn't know that God cared about how I played basketball. I didn't know that God cared about what kind of son I was. I didn't know God cared about what my career was. I didn't know God cared about how I treated girls. I didn't know God cared about any of that stuff. Because I didn't know that God was personal. I just thought God was something up there. And listen, too many people today think God is some universal power. That God is some cosmic energy that sends a vibration. And if we get the vibration, we... I mean, that is just total garbage. And the world is buying into that stuff. And Paul wanted his people to know that God is the Father. He's your daddy. He cares about you. And then he goes on through the whole rest of this this prayer, praying into them an understanding of what that's all about. Because this is critical for us to understand. If we, don't, if we really don't believe that God is our Father, and if we really don't believe and understand that God, that God really has a plan for us and, and His plan is perfect and then He really is in control of that plan, then um, we're going to be a, a, a people that have no peace. We have no hope. We're always stressed out because things aren't going the way that we think that they should be going. Because if God is God and God has a plan and his plan is perfect and it's God's plan, guess whose plan it's not? <laughs> it's not yours and it's not mine. And until we're willing to let go of that and realize that it's God's plan and God will do what is best, we won't have peace. And when we understand that, that's a powerful thing to understand. Because here's the thing. I have two girls. 
And, and these two girls are awesome. They are awesome. I don't deserve them, but I'll take them. And, and, and they're, they're, they're a little older now. But man, I tell you, as a father, I love them. I love them. I love them. I have my favorite oldest daughter and I have my favorite youngest daughter. It made it easy. There's only two. And sometimes I pause long enough to go, is he going to put in youngest or oldest? Always. Second only to my wife and who I love and the Lord. But you know what? There were times that they didn't like me a whole lot. You know why? Because they wanted something and I didn't give it to them. There were times that they, in the worst way, wanted to do something, and I said no. There were times in the worst way they wanted to be a part of something, and I said no. Why did I say no? Because I didn't like them? Because I wanted to make them miserable? Because I just love to see girls cry? No, because I know what's best for them. I know what was best for them. Did they understand it? No. Did they like it? No. Did I care? Yes. But I still said no. See, when we get a hold of the understanding that God is our Father and that He loves us and that He, he, he cares for us, we can, we, we can be a part of what He's doing even though we don't understand it, even though we don't get it, even though we, we can't get our arms around it. He is still our Father. And then as He continues to pray, this is where it gets really good because now He wants us to, to understand that as our Father, here are some things that are really important for to be internalized into us. That, that's the first thing because if we don't get the fact that He's our Father and that He loves us, then, then the rest of the stuff is going to be a challenge for us. But He says, man, that God is the God of everybody. And then He said that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Man, the Paul understood that because Paul, if you read 2 Corinthians, well, he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body, but I know I went to the third heaven, and that is unbelievable. And when Paul says, man, I, hope, I, I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, he understood what the riches of God's glory is all about. And it's the riches of his glory that we already have access to, but if we will, if we will allow it to penetrate us and fill us, then it allows us to, to experience something in the inner man that is transformational. Because if we understand that he's our, da he's our, he's our father, and then as our father, we understand that he is going to be able to grant to us according to the riches of all that he is, according to the riches of his glory, that we would be strengthened through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And not just strengthened to be strong, but he says that we would be strengthened with power in the, through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, I want to stop there for a few minutes because as we unpack this, this is so good. I mean, he didn't, he didn't just say be, be strengthened, you know, out of his power or being strengthened out of his riches, be strengthened according to his riches. I mean, think about that. Because, you know, if, if, if we were in church this morning and um, Bill Gates was sitting there and Ricky gives the offering and, and, you know, Bill pulls out his wallet during the offering, he pulls out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten hundred dollar bills and throws it in the offering. He would be giving out of his wealth. Now, if Bill Gates pulled out his checkbook and wrote a check for like a billion dollars and put it in the offering, he'd be given according to his wealth, right? When God gives according to the abundance of his riches and glory, he, he, he gives according to an unexhaustible resource. 
but he gives it to us so that we will be strengthened in the inner man. See, growth in our life and, and transformation in our life doesn't happen because some cosmic thing happens out there. It's because the Holy Spirit is a part of us, indwelling us, and 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 strengthening us in the inner man. And, and what happens is, is that that process is us allowing Christ to come in and dwell in us. See, that's salvation. Salvation is not us trying hard to become more like Christ. Salvation is letting Christ come in and become Jesus in us. The transformation happens in us supernaturally. And the more we allow Jesus to come into our life in every area of our life, the more the transformation occurs. And too many of us don't want Jesus in our life. We kick him out in certain places. I always kick Jesus out when I get in the car. No, you're not welcome here. You know, he, he frustrates me because he wants like five lengths in front of the, me on the car. That's crazy. Everybody moves in if there's five lengths. No, God, that doesn't work. He wants me to let people in. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, he doesn't want me to get mad when I'm following this person who's going like 12 miles an hour and they get to the light, the light turns yellow. They speed up and go through the light as it turns red and I'm stuck at the red light. No, thank you, God. I want to get mad. I, he's just not welcome. But you know what? <laughs> Nobody in my car has peace when I'm driving. <laughs> Nobody does. But you know, God, when he comes into our life and he strengthens us through his spirit in the inner man, he does that so Christ can dwell within us. So that as he comes in into our lives, it's transformational what happens in us. Because as we allow him to come in, Paul says that, that so that you may be rooted and grounded in love, so that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints whether it's the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of God which surpasses knowledge. See, here's the thing. When we allow Jesus to come into our life and his love begins to come into our hearts and it becomes fertile soil and we allow him to, to move roots down deep because it's, Paul uses this for a purpose that, that roots, when a tree has roots that go down deep in the soil, it becomes a solid tree. Storms come, winds come, everything hits that tree and it stands strong. Jesus used the, the parable when he talked about a foundation. He says, man, if you build your house on sand, the wind and the rain comes and it washes it away. If you build it on a solid foundation, the winds and the rains and the storms come and the house remains solid. And Paul is saying the same thing. When we allow Jesus not only to come into our hearts, but that fullness of him comes in and the love of him comes in, all of a sudden, all that we are begins to, to spread down into the being of our, of our being and we become strong. And then when things happen, when life happens, and I promise you, life will happen. It just happens. I can't predict it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I really don't like it, but I know that it happens. I don't know why God lets it happen. I don't know why Marge is waking up in the middle of the night with all kinds of pain. I don't know why people are losing their job. I don't know why babies die. I don't know why people, I don't know why that happens. I just know we're living in a sinful world, and I know that God loves us, and I know that God is in charge, and I know that if I allow myself to be deeply rooted in the love of God, that all that stuff will happen and I will stand strong in Christ. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. Thank you. That's good news, you guys. 
And then he says, so that you will be full to, to the fullness of God, filled to the fullness of God. How are we filled to the fullness of God? As Jesus comes in and it, and it just it becomes a stronger, stronger, stronger part of us, we just start seeing ourselves. It, it doesn't have, I mean, we don't even recognize it, but all of a sudden we are different people. We're not trying harder to be like Christ. We just are like Christ. How does that happen? Because Jesus in us begins to move all that other junk out of us. And that's Paul's prayer. He goes, man, there's so much that needs to happen and I'm here in prison. What can happen? God, please have them understand that you're my father. Please help them understand that, man, he, they can be so strong in the inner man. They can be transformed eternally if Jesus just comes in our life. This isn't some magic prayer that we pray in America today. It's been really easy to become a Christian. Just say the magic prayer. It's not a magic prayer. It is an understanding that we are sinners. And because we're sinners, there's a powerful, mighty God that is scary as anything. And he's a perfect judge. And when we come before him and thunder and lightning and stuff, and he says, why should I let you in? And I go, well, I tried hard. Nope. Well, I gave money to the church. Nope. When, when I come before God in that environment, I'm going to come knowing that he's a powerful, mighty God. And I'm going to be glad that he is. Because you know what? My girls would be glad if I really was like that guy in Taken. And if something happened to them, I could come and just wipe out like 5,000 people. But I can't do that. So you know what I do? I pray to God to do that. I go, God, you protect them because I can. If something happens to them, I'm dead. But we have that God. And when I come before him, you know what I do? I come before him and, and, and he goes, why should I let you in? And I just go... And I point to Jesus. And Jesus goes, yeah, Dad, I took care of him. He's good. I paid the price for him. He's a sinner. He's, he's, a, he's a waste. He's a mess. But you know what? My blood covers him. I died for him. That's the truth. And here's the reality of that truth, is that when I acknowledge that Jesus died for me, it's not fire insurance, it's lordship. And when I come to the Lord, I can't kick him out of the car. See, he goes, sorry, Dave, it's not part of the Lordship deal. I'm getting in. And you know what? You're going to have more slow people driving in front of you until you figure this thing out, by the way. I hate that part. Every light's going to turn red until you figure this thing out. Please. But you know, that's lordship. When we come to Christ, that's lordship. That's saying, Jesus, you're Lord. You change my life. You be the one who, who transforms me from the inside out. I can't do it. I can't work hard at being more like Jesus. I can't work hard at being perfect. All I can do is acknowledge that I'm a mess. And if Jesus doesn't come in and he doesn't strengthen me with power through his spirit in the inner man, if Jesus doesn't come in and allow me to be rooted deeply in his love and grounded, solid in his foundation, when things happen, I get discouraged. When things happen, I don't have peace. When things happen, I don't have hope. When things happen, I don't get in, I get frustrated. But when I know he's my daddy, when I know he loves me, when I know he cares about me, and I know that nothing is going to separate me from his love, I can go through these things and say, I don't like it, I don't get it, I don't understand it, but I trust you. Amen? The Ephesian church needed that because they were in all kinds of turmoil. We need that, don't we? So listen, people, as we pray, as we get prayer cards, let's pray for people. 
Let's pray for healing. Let's pray for their jobs. Let's pray for the stuff. But let's also pray that they would know that God is their daddy. Let's pray that by his uh, riches and glory that he would strengthen them in the inner man. Let's pray that they would be rooted and grounded in his love. Let's pray that, man, they look up, all they see is God's love. They look right, all they see is God's love. They look left, all they see is God's love. They look down, all they see is God's love. All they know is that God loves them regardless of what's going on in their life. And he's in charge. Let's pray that into each other's life. 